Welcome to the second Headley May podcast on diversity. I'm Deborah Warburton, a partner and head of the HR practice at Headley May. A year on from the Davis report, we ask, how much has the dial really moved on gender diversity and what can be done to ensure further progress? And who better to answer those questions than Caroline Waters, who's sitting here with me today? Caroline is Director of People and Policy at BT, and she has established herself as a leading voice both within BT and across the industry for diversity and equal opportunities, so much so that she was awarded an OBE in 2010. Caroline, welcome and thank you for joining us. Let's start with the controversial question of quotas. Are you for or against and why? I'm naturally against quotas and partly that's because there's no evidence to suggest that they actually work other than in a very superficial way. Now that may be a matter of time, but at the moment we know that women did not replace men on boards, they were added to boards. They're still a a minority and what we don't know is are they an effective part of the decision making process or are they just some supernumerary women. We also know through early research that it hasn't actually grown the number of women who are available and working at that level. What we're seeing is lots of women being on lots of different boards. So it's not really, as far as I can see yet, doing what we'd hoped it to do. I think there's also a very good argument about merit, about women absolutely getting to those level of appointments on merit so that they actually go through the process, they have all of the desired and essential criteria for getting onto the board and they're not seen to be helped on in a way that other candidates aren't. And I think that's a very important point in terms of the long-term progression of women. There's been a great deal of focus on getting women onto boards and 2012 has seen step change in the number of women appointed to FTSE 100 boards. But 87% of the new appointments have been non-executive directorships. A non-exec director spends maybe 20 to 30 days per year dedicated to a particular business. Should we not be focusing much more heavily on ensuring women are able to rise into full-time executive leadership roles, where they can have a far greater impact on their business? Absolutely, we should be looking at the longer-term roles. But I do think that NED placements have a role to play. And I think this is part of the problem. The argument is becoming quite absolutist. What we actually need is activity that will help women now, tomorrow, and in the longer term. So if we look at the NED argument, that's marvellous experience for a woman or anybody who is seeking to move to a a full-time executive board position. It's a great development curve. I don't think we should overlook it as a potential tool in the armoury that we have to advance this agenda. Is it the longer term solution in, in its entirety? Absolutely not. Would I prefer that women were getting the same opportunity as men, for example, to really prove their merit, really prove that they can have an impact doing things their way in an active, large business and preferably the one that they're working for at the time. Absolutely, I want that to happen. But let's not, in the bigger argument, overlook the fact that there are some tools that can actually unlock that gate 
for women who are already, if you like, knocking on the boardroom door. Okay. So what do you think are the main barriers to women rising through the corporate ranks? I mean, I, unfortunately, I don't think that the barriers have changed a great deal in the last 30 years. I mean, things have got better, there's no doubt, but many of the barriers are still the same. I think one of the most significant barriers is what I would call the intensification of work and the number of extreme jobs that are being created. And we, we've all seen these jobs, we know them. They're basically impossible to do unless you completely dedicate your time and energy to the organisation, to the business. Those roles are very uh, less attractive to women. So I think a lot of women are actually opting out. So that is definitely a new barrier. The barriers that have always been there that continue to exist are around the whole practicality of family and career. And that's not necessarily about women having uh, children, but it's also about the elder care increase that we are seeing and women still having the predominant share of that task as well. We're also seeing the fact that we still have this seeming lack of confidence amongst many women where they won't apply for a role unless they believe they can do 95% of it straight off. Whereas men are much greater risk takers in that way, much more confident. And so women sometimes holding themselves back. I think if you look at the bottom end, at the start of career, a lot of girls still aren't being given those aspirations to join the workplace and to succeed. And there are still barriers. I mean, girls are outperforming boys at school and yet we're still talking to girls in a very stereotypical way, a very gender stereotyped way about the sort of roles that they might take. And I think these things and many others continue to be real barriers. But I think one of the mistakes that's been made is we have to look at the gender agenda in a much broader way because Certainly I believe that women will never get true access to the workplace unless men get true access to the home. So until we've got a much more balanced ownership of home and all of the domestic issues that go with that, whether it be child rearing or elder care, I think it's really hard for women to make that advance. And let's not forget, many men want that. Yeah. So there's an open door that we could knock on. Mm. I wanted to go back to your point about extreme jobs and this intensification of work you talked about. If we focus on the FTSE 100, would not all CFO and CEO positions fall into that category? I think most of them would. But there are freedoms and autonomy about how those can be done, and that's a lot to do about the culture of the organisation. So if I, if I look at BT... The chief executive of our open reach business, now that's the piece that people would probably most relate to, the um, field engineers out there in their, in their little grey vans. It's a huge business, we're talking 30,000 plus people, multi-billion pound business, it would be a FTSE 100 company in its own right. Our chief executive there is Liv Garfield. She's a, a very bright young woman with a, a young family and she does that job in a way 
and with that degree of confidence that actually says, no, do you know what, I'm not doing that meeting because I'm going to pop home and put the boys to bed. So it's about setting expectations, but you need the business to be okay culturally with the fact that she's going to manage that and her family responsibilities in her way jointly. And can you see that working in a PLC chief executive role? Absolutely. Absolutely I can. And I think this is one of the the problems because we always start from the basis that it can't be done. And yet we've got real examples of women doing it out there and actually increasingly we've got examples of men doing it out there. Men who are absolutely out about being a dad, out about being a carer and managing their home and workloads in that way. Mm. Now hopefully if we get more enlightened people like that we will create a culture that allows us to do two things. To find a way of working in these extreme jobs but also to stop designing them. Unconscious bias has been highlighted recently as another barrier to diversity. Can you tell us a little bit more about that and what companies and headhunters should be doing to guard against it? Yeah, well I think unconscious bias is something that has been a topic that people have been talking about for a long time. I don't think it's very deeply understood. A lot of organisations spent a lot of money training people on bias awareness and that hasn't changed their results greatly. So the whole thing is now back in the mixing pot to be looked at again. What it basically means is that we apply the things that we believe we know about an individual or a type of individual to every individual who fits that model. Mm -hmm. So we also continue to kid ourselves that we don't all do it, that we don't all have our biases. You know, I saw some fascinating work about what happens if you have an individual in an MRI scanner and you show them a photograph of somebody who looks very much like themselves. One part of their brain lights up. If you show them a picture of someone who has a different cultural background, is a different gender, a different part of their brain lights up. The part that lights up in the second is the fight or flight. So we are genetically wired to notice difference. If we believe that, we then have to have a sort of litmus test for how we deal with people. Are we genuinely making evidence-based assessments or are we stereotyping? How far into our processes, even our infrastructure, do those stereotypes go? So lots of businesses are still describing leadership skills against a very male-dominated model. Now, if you do that, if we associate certain male characteristics with leadership, then nine times out of ten, we're going to put a male into that role. Or we will pick a woman who doesn't feel free to actually show her Mm -hmm. feminine traits in the role. Mm -hmm. So unconscious bias, I think we've been trying to make the intervention at the recruiter level, at the general employee level, and actually we need to take it much further back in the process and challenge some of our assumptions about how we describe roles, how we assess performance, how we determine who is talent, and only then can we really be sure 
that we have a way forward that doesn't involve unconscious bias. There's a proliferation of women's networks um, and diversity is a common topic, uh, these sorts of things, but isn't that missing the point? Should women not be networking more with men? Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, this is right to the point of the question, really. So women are networking with women. And that's always going to create a very um, uneven school because there aren't that many very senior women. So there is an undue uh, sort of push, demand from women at the level below to get into those women and to pick up their pearls about how they got on and all the rest of it. When actually what we want is women talking to the male decision makers, being connected, so that when somebody who has uh, an opportunity... Very often the male, let, let's face it, looks at that job spec. They're thinking, oh, there was a very bright person that I was talking about. Who was it? Oh, yes, I think I've got her business card here somewhere. Rather than it being just, okay, I know this person. Mm-hmm. So we actually need more men engaged in the debate from that point of view. Absolutely. And it's always very disappointing whenever you go to a gender conference to see that the audience is still 80-85% female. We need the men to be around the table too. Well, let, let's talk about the debate itself, because it, it allied to that point, it strikes me that the debate is still happening at the relative margins of an organisation, and often 80% of those engaged in it are the minorities themselves, whether mm. it's gender or, or other minorities. And, and it's only by making it absolutely mainstream and involving as many men as it does women that anything's going to change absolutely it's about making it mainstream and i think for some organizations it is there so for bt again it's a board debate it's an operating committee debate it's something that's very live and on the agenda Um, and that's where it needs to be it needs the existing leaders to really engage with it and to talk about what are the actions because it's very easy to have a great intent but it takes real discipline to have the simple action-based plan that creates the change and if I if I look at BT and if I said right okay I need to make a 1% improvement in the number of women in the organisation That means that I have to replace something like 200 men with women. You know, and it's getting down to, do you really know what that means? Can you really do it? Now, that doesn't mean you're targeting a man and taking the man and putting a woman in. It means when you're looking at your recruitment numbers, you're looking at your overall mergers and acquisitions, you understand what the impact is. In terms of headhunters and search agencies, recruiters generally, I do think that there needs to be much more performance management from the client about what are you doing to attract a more diverse base of people, not just for this specific job but generally. How well educated are your people about the issues? What outreach programmes have you got in place? How can you assure me that your processes are fair? So let's have a look at the conversion rates. 
who actually makes it through onto the shortlists. Now, I think there's lots more that we could be doing that makes it much clearer, that makes it auditable, and actually also helps us with the further analysis of where the problem really is. And so for those companies at a much earlier stage of the journey to a more enlightened future, where should diversity sit if a company that isn't tackling it particularly successfully right now is wanting to drive step change? Where do they begin the journey? The, the truth is there isn't one model. Where they have to begin the journey is with an influential individual. Now usually that's somebody at the top of the organisation, but not necessarily always so particularly in smaller organisations. So it has to absolutely have the backing of somebody who is respected within the organisation. For some organisations that will be in HR, for some it will be the chief executive, for some it may even, if the key focus, the key language of your business is about the bottom line and finance, maybe it should start in the finance area. This is about absolutely looking at your organisation, finding someone who has a passion, giving them the evidence and allowing them to change your organisation. And I would say the first key is how influential are they? One of the things that came up at the lunch was um, if you're talking about initiatives, you've lost the battle. So how do you move beyond the initiatives to a set of practices and beliefs and behaviours that really are supporting this change? Ah, this comes in, of course, as the hard work behind the uh, good intentions that we talked about earlier. And it's all about driving away your normal assumptions and stereotypes. Assumptions about um, this is the way we've always done recruitment. You may have to face some really tough questions. Do you truly want to be a diverse organisation or do you want to do things the way you've always done them? You can't necessarily have both. So it's absolutely about having a very clear statement of where you want to be, a very clear and evidence-based picture of where you are now and being bold and disciplined enough to take the steps. And that will mean a proper review of your policies. So how do you attract people? Have you always advertised in the same places? Have you always used the same people sources? Have you been talking to them about what you need? Have they listened or not? Maybe they're not the right partner for you. What do your recruitment processes look like? Do you have a talent pool? Do you know, can you tell whether people move through your business in a diverse way or just do certain groups? Have you got leadership? It's about looking at all of these steps because this is one of those agendas where lots of people might talk about, oh, the most important thing is to feed the bottom of the pyramid. We've had a lot of focus on getting women leaders to the top of the organisation. The truth is you can't shift this unless you're prepared to do it all. You have to have a proper diversity built-in model to make this work effectively. And it looks like it's the middle of the pyramid anyway where the biggest problem is. I would absolutely agree. I think part of the problem a few years ago was the educational attainment of girls and young women. We definitely can't say that's the problem now. We're seeing women coming into the workforce and returning to the workforce in huge numbers. 
we are seeing progress. We're seeing a lot of women becoming non-executive directors and making that step at senior levels. What's happening in the middle? I don't hear anybody talking about that. I see all the pressures on families growing with the economy and everything else. There is a lot more that we can do to help women in that area and to help men, actually. And I do think that's the secret, to be able to engage with their partnership at home, raising a family, caring, you know, having a happy, fulfilled life and having careers. The thing that worries me the most in that area is that I think we've got to that stage now where young men and women have a lot of the same life choices. The point where those life choices really diverge is at the point they have a child. Because the way we have things constructed in this country, one person has to take the larger part of sharing that. So if we can change that at that point, if we can continue to equalise, if we can give both partners more choice, I think we will really open up that middle section. And for me, that, getting fair pay in place, those are the final things that need to fall into place. And so if we look back over the last 20 years, most people would admit by any set of statistics, the dial hasn't moved a lot. Looking forward over the next 10 years, what do you predict? I think that the next couple of years will continue to be tough. But I think more and more organisations are putting in place the steps that need to happen. I think the education system is standing up. I think with better engagement from employers with that education system, we'll raise career awareness and aspirations amongst women. So I'm optimistic. If I look back, there are definitely more women around, certainly in my sector, in the IT, in the engineering sector. But what I'm really seeing is women being women. We've had women leaders for a long time, but I think in the past they felt that they had to fulfill this kind of very male paradigm of a leader. Now we're seeing young women taking huge roles, being proud to be a mum as well, being proud to be very feminine in a male-dominated area and delivering. That's one of the fabulous steps that we've made and I'm really optimistic that some of the brilliant young women we've got in that middle band are absolutely going to crash their way through that glass ceiling in the next few years. It's a very exciting prospect.